Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. We are back. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have our in-house high-performance coach and first overall draft pick, Lauren Williams. Lauren, how are you? I'm good. I think I'm just finally emerging from like the food coma that the holidays bring and getting all my brain cells back. So it's going well. <laughs> just in time for New Year's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. There, there's always, uh, I didn't really have too much of a food coma, like we're locked down. So, so there hasn't been too much going on for me, but always, you know, New Year's and Christmas is a fun time. So Right. No, we're, we're on full lockdown too, but, uh, I think just to try and keep things somewhat normal, my mom and family decide, nope, we're going to do the meals the exact same way as if we had our normal, like 12, 15 people here. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of food going around. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite times of year, not, not for just sporting times of year, you know, like, you used to play hockey. Your brother, Max, who's with us today, also played hockey. And this is actually the only time of year I watch hockey now. I watch World Juniors every year, and I love it. So, And and with that, obviously, we have a special guest sitting right next to you. You have your brother, Max. Max, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here. Uh, glad to be home with the holidays. My sister, it's always an important time of uh, year for me because, obviously, working in the uh, in the Army, don't get to spend too much time at home. So, Always, uh, always a happy time of the year for me. A happy time, and and you got to get those bullying, you know, that bullying in yeah, before you leave get, overseas. Absent in person while I can. <laughs> so with that, you know, like you're here, and you know, you've talked a little bit about it. You're you're in the army. Do you want to just give a, us a background on yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Captain Max Williams, I'm uh, I'm a I was a platoon commander at the first battalion, uh, Royal Canadian Regiment in Petawawa. Um, I started my military career in 2012 at the Royal Military College of Canada in Kingston, uh, where I played rugby and was a uh, history major. Uh, after uh, five years there, four, four and a half, five years there, uh, I moved on to complete my training in uh, Gagetown, New Brunswick, uh, which is the only place in Canada I think you can walk uphill and find a swamp. <laughs> uh, after that uh, like I said I was posted to uh, Petawawa with the 1st Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment which is a, a mechanized uh, infantry unit so we work with uh, the big eight-wheeled bad boy vehicles the Lab 6.0 uh, and there I was uh, de deployed on Oplentis the um, domestic deployment for the Ottawa River flood uh, and ever since uh, September of this year I've been training and gearing up to deploy to uh, Kuwait Nice. And you, you, we did talk a little bit about it before, but you have a career, like you've been an athlete your entire life in hockey and now in rugby. Yeah. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't know what Lawrence told you about growing up, but I left home at, at 15 years old. I went to Athelmary College in Notre Dame, uh, kind of chasing that hockey dream for a little bit, uh, where I think I accidentally stumbled into the sport of rugby. Uh, and I think I found my my true calling as an athlete was to play rugby. Um, and that, that dream is, is really what led me to, uh, RMC. Um, you know, I met the coach for RMC playing Ontario rugby. Uh, and he said, Hey, I know you're thinking about a, a career in the military. How would you like the government to pay for your, your schooling while being able to play, uh, what is quintessentially one of the highest levels of rugby in Canada and you're playing in the OUA is, uh, is a very prestigious level of rugby for Canada. Uh, considering its infancy in, in the rugby world. Um, the transition from hockey to rugby was, was different, a very different aspect of, uh, of leadership. Given I, I'd been a captain on a lot of hockey teams I'd been on, but being a captain on a rugby team was uh, a completely new experience. Um, I don't know what you, rugby, there's, it's 40 minute halves. There's no, there's no running away. Uh, you can't get off the ice and take a take a minute to collect your thoughts. You got to uh, you got to be Johnny on the spot with that that leadership. No matter if you're you're sucking dirty pond water because you just ran down the field for 50 <laughs> yards, or if you just got your your uh, brain bashed in by a 250 pound monster, like you got to still be able to 
to collect your guys and make that leadership decision. Um, but moving forward, like I never stopped being an athlete, even, even when I stopped playing rugby at RMC, um, I took that tap. We, we, we use a term called tactical athlete. Uh, it's something that we borrowed from the United States uh, special operations command. Uh, we view ourselves as, as athletic tools uh, that are employed by the military. And we train ourselves that way so that we don't, we don't forget how taking care of the body uh, and the mind leads to you becoming a more effective uh, tool in the field. Uh, and I think that being an athlete and playing sports, especially team sports like hockey, rugby, uh, even, even volleyball, stuff like that, is extremely important uh, in, if we're going to be deployed in operations and stuff like that because you are a team. There's no individual in any, any circumstance in the military, it's always a team effort and you don't always know the people in your team. You know, you know, you have a, you have a team of, of uh, athletes. Usually you have known quantities, known values of, of who they are. Um, like going to Kuwait, I'm going to be working with people that I've never met in my entire life. And I have no idea uh, what they're bringing to the table. I've got to be able to react and deal with that and, and still employ some, t- some form of leadership. So when you talk about that, like when I talk about leadership, typically how I always kind of relate it to people is like you show up, you try to create this psychologically safe, like vulnerable atmosphere where you can really get to know people like on the deepest level and create that trust. If you're stepping into an environment, you don't know people and like literally your life is on the line. Like, how do you manage that? Uh, I think like my, my first strategy usually is, uh, I like to tell, tell people like, about my life. I think that the, the more they know about you as a person and where you come from, the more they are, the more they're willing to open up to you and tell you about their life. Yeah. And as soon as you have that, that connection, uh, that bond between, okay, you've, you've told me about everything about you and you know, everything about me. Now there's, there are things that you guys can, can bond about over and until you are able to bond with someone over something it's going to be really hard to have that trust and uh if there's no trust there's it's really hard to convey any type of leadership yeah no we're we're on the same lines here and that's actually one of the first tips that that i started using in, in leadership and i got it from clive lloyd he's a like a leadership psychologist out of australia mm-hmm. and he said like this is one of the first things he does when he goes to a site is like he gets the leaders to give not their resume, but their actual story about who they are mm-hmm. to their team and then ask it in return. And it creates those bonds. And I think it's really, I mean, that's like the first introduction to vulnerability. So I, I think it, it definitely does work. Yeah. I took, I took a lot of my, uh, my leadership from um, a, retired Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Hackworth. Uh, he's, he's seen as one of the best military leaders uh, in the United States infantry history. Uh, he wrote a book called About Face, which was called The Odyssey of the American Infantryman. Um, and he talks about, you know, stuff that I took from him. One was, was break, breaking down those bonds, um, exposing your vulnerabilities and sharing that, that life story with somebody. Uh, and then I would, I'd go work out with them. That was my other thing. So that's had two things, two ways I learned a lot about people was learn their life story and then let's go do something physically challenging together. And then that's, that would pretty much tell me everything I need to know about somebody and then how I would be able to work, go forward working with them. I love that. And, and that's something, you know, I've, I've really found lacking in a professional context, right? Is I felt like through my sporting career, you create those bonds with people because you're like in the weeds with them. And like, for me, it was in the pool, but you know, like you're really working hard, you're, you're shoulder to shoulder, you're getting it in. And I find like in a professional context, it just isn't the same. And I don't know where, like how to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I was lucky enough, like the army is a special place in that, uh, sometimes, you know, you get paid to work out twice a day. Plus, you know, I'm never complaining about that. They could, they could stick me in like alert and I would probably still be happy because I'm getting paid to work out. But, you know, you, sometimes you get, uh, you get two birds with one stone, you know, you throw a, you throw a rucksack, uh, for all those don't a rucksack it is a heavy, really heavy backpack that carries all your stuff. Um, you throw a rucksack on 
and you go walk 20 kilometers with this person, that's, you know, that's two hours, two and a half hours where you are able to find out just about everything you need to know about that person. Um, a, you're going to find out through conversation, but B, you're going to find it out through a physical uh, trial and tribulation. Cause like that is, that is not an easy task either physically. So now you're going to work their mind while you're working their body. And you're really going to find out about the, the meat and potatoes of who that person is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to dig into is something you said just before we started recording was that rugby, like leadership for you in rugby directly translated to the field where leadership in hockey didn't. Do you want to just elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So leadership in hockey for me was a little bit different. Uh, it was a very like, um, it was a very prepared leadership. And then on the ice, you had time to be an individual on the ice. And then when the whistle stopped, then you, then you like, you really became the leader on the ice. Uh, and then you got on the bench and you had your leadership moment on the bench. But while the, while the puck was moving on the ice, I found that I was a little bit more of an individual uh, just because everybody has their own, it's, it's so fluid and everybody has their own little bubble of, of, of operation. Whereas in rugby, uh, it, it's always, it's constantly flowing. There's very little stoppage in playing rugby. Uh, and all of the decisions you have to make are predicated upon experience, but they're still very reactionary. And you always have to be constantly surveying what's going on and adjusting your decisions based off what's happening and employing the skills and abilities of the people at your disposal to best suit what is what is evolving and what's happening on the field and how that directed how that correlated to my job in the army uh, the situation when you're working with a platoon in the field even in training uh, is very much the same you have people with very specific skills and abilities and you and if you're a good platoon commander you understand each person's skills and abilities and you adjust how you're employing them to the ever evolving situation that's going on. You know, we, we, we always say that no plan survives first contact or, you know, you can, you can come up, like we go through an eight hour planning cycle for a mission, uh, you know, 20 minutes into that mission, uh, we, we, our objective may have changed. And now we have to think about it on the fly and you gotta, you know, you know that your, your front two guys, your best nav guys, and you go, okay, Hey, listen, we got to go from point A to point B now, instead of going to point C. Uh, and that you got to just be able to make that adjustment. And I think that's where rugby really helped me as a leader uh, in the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lauren, I, do you want to talk a little bit about how leadership played out for you in hockey? Yeah. So I was just about to say too, like, I think one of the main things that you're addressing there is that in hockey, it's kind of like you have moments for leadership. Mm-hmm. Like you have, for example, like when you get off the ice um, on the bench and notice that like your team morale is down, that's a moment for leadership where you are able to um, notice the situation and react to it in, in some way that allows you to either A, pick your team up, B, say like, hey, we need to snap out of it or whatever is going on. But for you, it's like, if you have a leader who's only seizing those very obvious moments for leadership, you're missing out on some of the, like the key parts that create the consistency that ultimately is going to save somebody's life. Um, And if you have that type of leader, then you're going to notice a bunch of gaps in performance um, for, you know, for your sport or for, you know, execution on plans, strategies, whatever it is. But yeah, I definitely noticed that like, even as a leader on my own teams, I was always looking for those moments of leadership, um, knowing that, you know, my, whatever I was doing was very important at all times. So I always tried to lead by example um, and convey a strong work ethic and attitude but like you hear the whistle go off and you're like, okay, what can I address right now? And you're looking for what you can react to mm-hmm. in terms of a leader. Whereas, you know, you're talking about it in more of a, it's always there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a ever, ever present mm-hmm. moment of leadership is the best way I can put it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think you can ever turn it off in my opinion. Like I think, right. if, especially 
I mean, it's anywhere, right? But I mean, especially if you're with your guys like 24 seven, right? It's like, you just have to be that. You have to embody the leader that you are. I call it, I call it being the dude. Yeah. You are, you are <laughs> or the dudette. You know, it goes both ways. As long as you're, until you're back home in, in your house and you close the door, uh, you're the dude. Like you're the, you're the guy. They're going to come to you uh, for pretty much everything that needs to be done. They're going to look for guidance. They're going to look for um, ways to, to, to get out of a problem, to solve something. Um, they're, they're, obviously, they will have ideas of their own. You know, if you've, if you've done a good job as a leader, you've fostered that uh, environment where people are willing to bring their ideas to the table and willing to help put the, pe- the puzzle pieces together. Uh, but at the end of the day, especially in the Army, at the end of the day, the platoon commander is the boss, and, he, and he's the guy who makes the call. So like, like I said, you are the dude and you don't get to turn it off. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a, a common misconception, right? Of leadership is people think that it's you as the quote unquote authority figure thinks of everything and decides what is supposed to happen. And it's like, that actually holds your team back, right? Is like, you're going to have experts on your team and specific skill sets, and yeah. you need to have the psychological safety and that they can tell you the truth yeah. and they can give their best opinion on what's happening. And then you have that level of trust where you can have an honest conversation and make the best decision for the unit. And I think that's something that I see in industry is a problem is like with a lot of managers that I see, they're like, they just overrule their, the person who they hire as the SME and it's like, this guy's the subject matter expert. He knows the best. And if you're just saying like, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about, then why did you hire them in the first place? Mm. It takes, and it takes, a, uh, it takes a certain amount of, I say it takes a lot more uh, confidence. It takes a lot more personal confidence and a lot of, a lot of like strong mental ability to be able to let somebody own part of your plan. So like when we go through our planning cycle, we call it uh, owning part of the plan. So if you, the more people own part of the plan, the more they are bought into the success of that plan. Yeah. So if you are the person who comes to the, to the table and you said, I planned it all out. This is A through Z. This is what's going to happen. You know, you're, you're basically uh, leading a flock of sheep at that point. Uh, whereas if you come to the table and say, you know, uh, Sergeant so-and-so has got this part of the plan. Sergeant uh, B has this part of the plan. Warren's got this part of the plan. Now all those guys are bought in. They have more invested in that plan succeeding, which probably lead to a higher chance of success. <laughs> You're talking my language. This is what we do. So, no, I love this. And, and I think like there's, I mean, there's a lot there, right? And I think for me, what I've seen driving a lot of the issues that I see in, in leadership, I'll call it more management, but mm-hmm. it is ego, Right. And ego is a huge part and the barrier that's holding us back from accepting all those plans from your experts. Right. And I I think like the first step for me is just really understanding who you are and what you're bringing to the table as a leader. And that doesn't mean you have to have, you know, managerial authority. It just means that you own your own role in yourself. And I think that's the the piece that people should, if you're listening to this, is start with yourself and then worry about everybody else. Yeah, 100%. Know yourself. Yeah. Um, and ego is a big part of it. And I work in an organization where there is a lot a lot of big egos. Uh, the Army likes big, big egos because they tend to be the personalities that are, when the chips are down, are the, are the guys and girls who say, follow me, uh, because they have the confidence to say that. The flip side of that is, is that sometimes it leads to a, a little bit of overbearing and micromanaging. Uh, you gotta, you gotta take stock of yourself and say, where, where am I lacking? You know, where are my deficiencies? Whereas there is somebody that can help me uh, pick myself up in that category. And that's where you start to look to other members of your team. You know, you can't do it all by yourself. Yeah, Rob, I think this is like also touching on something that we've talked a lot about lately, which is um, employee disengagement, basically, 
And in the military, you can't have disengaged employees because everybody has a very essential thing to be doing. Um, but we were talking about this in terms of like when you have uh, a leader or a manager who, you know, you were brought in as the content expert or whatever it is that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, the SME, expert. Yeah. 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 So you bring this person in and this even happened to Rob too, where he's like, Hey, I figured out a way to save you guys a bunch of money. You have to change X, Y, Z. And they basically called bullshit on him and said, yeah, no, uh, we're not going to do that. If, if, uh, it was that easy to figure out, we would have figured it out ourselves. And that just breeds the system of like, if you're not giving people the responsibility of their own job, of course, it's going to start to breed this idea of like, okay, well, why am I here? It, what am I doing? <laughs> I can tell you that is one of like, if you go ask uh, a dude who's worked in infantry battalion for a while, though, the answer that everybody hates is, well, that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. It is, it is rampant in, in the military. That is one of the age old excuses for just about anything. You find a new way to do it. It may be more efficient. Uh, it may save them money. It may save them time but it's just not the way they've always done it. And, and it's like, a, it's like hitting, it's like walking into a glass wall. You just can't, for some reason, people just don't want to go past it. And it's really hard to break that stigma of that's the way we've always done it, especially in a culture that is steeped in tradition. So now you're not only you're fighting people's mental blocks against change you're fighting an organizational block against change which is immensely harder yeah and i think it's so rampant like i like i come from mining oil and gas and like it's so rampant is we've always done it this way and i think what it is like i don't honestly like i think the first piece to start with there is empathy and the reason i say that is the the people who have made it to the top of the organization are deeply entrenched in the way that it's always been because they've been successful at the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. And it's scary to go to them and say, basically like you're telling them that they've done it wrong. I mean, you, you may not like, obviously I, I don't recommend you walk up to your boss and say, you're an idiot. You did it wrong. Like that's gonna, <laughs> that's gonna not work. <laughs> <laughs> but be more uh, be more political in your language <laughs> that's right <laughs> but but i mean like a lot of them if they have an ego that's how it's going to sit with them mm -hmm. and they're going to feel like oh i should have figured this out i should have seen a different way you know this policy was wrong and i think like if you come at it with a place of empathy where you're saying like i understand you know you're successful at this level you know i'm not trying to change like how you've done things. I'm not trying to kick you out of your job. I'm not trying to make you look bad. I'm trying to make you look better. I think like you can maybe get a little traction there. And I think just to be honest, I think a lot of us come at it wrong, right? We come at it and we say like, you know, you've done it wrong this whole time and I figured out a better way and people just, it doesn't sit well. Yeah. It, I think that, I think that leads into, uh, something like we like to call emotional intelligence. Yeah. I'm sure you guys heard that term before. Uh, it's a big thing in the, in the soft community is emotional intelligence. Uh, knowing, knowing how that you're going to talk to somebody and, and the ways in which you're going to approach uh, either stroking their ego or, or confronting it because there's good and bad ways to do both. I mean, you, no one wants to be a suck up, uh, but at the same time, uh, no one wants to, uh, no one wants to break down the brick wall that is someone's ego because that's going to lead to confrontation. So you have to have a certain amount of emotional intelligence to go into somebody and, and everybody's a puzzle, right? Each person is their own puzzle. Uh, find out which way that puzzle is put together and, and how is the best way to go and talk to them about something. Um, and I've had the experience of having multiple bosses over a short amount of time, but doing the same job myself. So tailoring the way that I'm going to go and talk to each one of these new bosses while still maintaining the same function, uh, it, it's a challenge unto its own. 
I love that. And and maybe let's dig a little further. Like the military is obviously very, I assume it's male dominated and it's very like macho in a sense. And, and that's what I deal with in mining and oil and gas. Like how do you approach emotions and emotional intelligence while still like, you know, cause there's that stigma, right? That emotions are weak or emotions are female in a way. I don't know if you want to I don't know. If yeah, I, I can touch you know. on that. I mean, I, I can tell you that we're we're growing as an organization away from that stigma. Um, the era of Afghanistan had a lot to do with that. Uh, guys experiencing guys and women experiencing some heavily traumatic situations um, and coming back and continuing their job in the army because we, the, the Canadian Army is, is, a, is a very small professional organization, completely volunteer based. So, you know, you, you didn't have guys going on one tour, coming back and getting out. They were, they were continuing their profession because that was, that was their vocation. That was who they were. They were a, a soldier, an airman, uh, a naval uh, a sailor, right? They didn't want to give up their job just because they were dealing with some, some emotional problems. My, my best advice is being real. Be real with the people. Be real with your people. Be real with your, your hires and be real with your subordinates. Um, people see through fake machoism you know i'm the i'm the pt god um you can't there's nothing like if, if you have problems tuck them away i don't want to hear about that you the, the more real you are with people the more vulnerable i am with my subordinates and and my superiors the more um what's the word i'm looking for the more genuine of, of a conversation two-way conversation i'm going to have with that person it doesn't it doesn't pay out to stow that stuff away uh it pays to expose those things uh and be completely vulnerable and honest with somebody otherwise how can you expect them to be completely honest and, and vulnerable with you it's a, it's a two-way street yeah they won't <laughs> and then, and then, you're gonna, then you're gonna find out about stuff down the road that could have been dealt with up front and it's gonna lead to it's either gonna lead to problems with performance or it's gonna lead to problems outside of work uh, and, and those are the worst problems because dealing with problems at work is one thing having to deal with somebody's life that has nothing to do with their job performances. That's a whole other ball of wax. And that's something we've talked about on this show before. And like, maybe Lauren, you want to talk about it a little bit is just like, we cannot separate our work life from our home life. Like it's all one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say too, like it almost, in some ways feels like the military is a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of mental health because of how grave some of those circumstances are that we're learning about like in terms of ptsd we all know what it is now whereas you know you know 50 years ago it it was people were coming home from war and and we didn't understand what was wrong with them whereas now you you definitively know that PTSD is a thing mm -hmm. and that it, it harms your ability to show up and do your job. And therefore we need to find a way to help people with it, which is why you now see like counseling psychologists and social workers in yeah. the military, which is awesome. Um, because you know, it, if you cannot do your job in the military, either you're going to get hurt or somebody else is going to get hurt as a cause of it. Mm -hmm or you're going to have a completely ineffective employee, which is not what they want. Um, yeah, given the know. amount of money that we invest in, in, in training these people, the last thing you want is, is somebody who's, uh, who's unable to do their job because they did their job. Right. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think, the, yeah, like you said, the military it has done a good job um, in some ways, and in some ways it hasn't, you know, we've developed uh, systems like like warrior support and i think the name of it is, is a good start you know warrior support it's not damaged goods support it's not broken toy island support it's <laughs> it's warrior right it's the warrior warrior ethos uh you're still an integral part to this team we just you know maybe you need some help dealing with some stuff but i think another another thing you know and i don't i don't speak ill of any of any of the programs but sometimes we fall short in supporting our people too uh because some of that stigmatism does still exist where people don't don't want to open up about it you know they don't want to be the weak link they want to be they want to be the guy that's always dependent upon and, and don't want to be seen as someone who isn't able to be dependent upon 
And that's, you know, that's something that's still hard. And I talk about, you know, the courage for, of asking for help. And, and I read an article, I don't, not long ago, but I think it was a few years old and it is, it was out of Australia and there were, they, they, in my opinion, are ahead of us in mental health, especially in industry, like in mining specifically. And they wrote this article about, basically they had a hundred uh, men who had committed suicide, who were working as in mining. And what they said was only seven of them asked for help before. And they were saying like, it's not just about the programs because there is still a reticence for people to go out and ask for help before. And so it's not just about having the best program possible. It's about creating that environment and destigmatizing it where it's okay for people to actually come forward and say, Hey, I'm hurting today. I need help. hundred percent that the environment has to be there for the program to succeed big time. One, one is one's hand in hand with the other. Do you yeah. think that's in the military? Uh, I think so. I think it's, I think it's being worked on. Mm. I think the environment is growing better. Um, it's not where it's not perfect, but I don't think anything is. Um, and it's hard because, you know, we're dealing, we're in this operational evolution where we, we haven't dealt with, uh, combat stress injuries since, you know, 2000 and 2014, when we pulled out Afghanistan, not to say they don't exist. I'm sure there are people who deal with that stuff every day, but we have, we're not dealing with, with new cases. Um, so it's, it's a little bit hard to gauge where we're at with it. Uh, but I think that we have come leaps and bounds from say where we were in, in the nineties for sure. Yeah. Like I think, I think about in terms of one of the first things you have to do for creating an environment where it's okay to say like, Hey, I'm not feeling good about this, um, is to talk about it. hundred percent. So like when you meet with new, you know, recruits, when you have, um, reserve guys come on a base and you start working with them or, you know, people that graduate out of RMC, is there like a general, not speech or course given where PTSD and the mental effects of being in the military are brought up or no? Um, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll always talk about, um, door, the doors that are open. Every unit has, a chaplain who is not only a, a, obviously somewhat of a religious leader, but he is our, he's our social worker as well. Mm-hmm. And he always lets it be known that his door is always open, but um, to go levels below him, like when, when guys show up to the platoon or they show up to the company, uh, I always let it know. I'm like, Hey, um, my door is always open. I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm in there crushing a stack of paperwork or uh, if, if my door is physically closed at the time. Um, don't, don't be afraid to come and talk to me. You got a problem. You need, that's something I can help with. Uh, don't feel that you're ever alone and you have to deal with something completely on your, on your own. Because like, listen, you're, you come into the building, you're in an organization of 350 people who share the same struggles, you know, to think that you're alone in that problem is, it's, 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 it's kind of almost a little bit silly, right? Like you're, you're in a, literally just that building alone. There is 300 to 400 people who, who do the same job. So to think that, there isn't somebody that understands what you're going through. You know, I, I don't, I'm going to call a bluff on that one. I don't think so. I think that maybe you're just, you might be afraid to open up about it. And then that's where it becomes somebody like my job to make sure that they know that there is someone they can talk to about it. Yeah, it's absolutely, it starts with the leader. And that's where like every company I've worked for says the same thing, right? We have open door policy and yet they don't foster the psychological safety where it's okay to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the gap, right? And it's like, if you're actually showing up, you're being vulnerable as a leader, you're creating that team environment, high trust, low fear environment. That's where people are going to find it okay. And it's wild, right? Because I never really thought about this as, as a thing for me. But when I started talking about like my struggles with depression on my former podcast, I got emails from people around the world saying like, you shouldn't talk about it because you're not going to get promoted at work. And I think like that is another barrier that people struggle with because it's like, if I talk to my manager about, you know, my mental illness, like, does that mean I'm 
no longer fit to be promoted? Like, is that a thing? I don't know, but it's a, it's something that we need to like tackle because if that's a reason for people not to speak up, like it's hurting people. Yeah. It, that, that goes back to like what I was saying about sharing experiences. Um, like when I was going through my training, um, I had, had a, a couple concussions from rugby. Uh, but when I was going through my training, I got in a really bad armored vehicle accident, uh, where I sustained probably one of the worst concussions I've ever had. Um, derailed me off training two weeks before I'd finished uh, my cycle and was going to be sent to a uh, frontline unit. I had to then wait in, in Gage town away from my family, away from my girlfriend, uh, for an entire year. Um, where I, well, I was lucky enough to be able to teach leadership courses while I was there. Uh, but sharing that and I, and I went to, you know, I was in a pretty dark place mentally. I was like, you know, am I, am I broken? Am I ever going to get back to the place where I was? Uh, and my, I felt like I was in this like giant holding pattern of life where I was just waiting, uh, to get back to where I was. And I found that my, my ladder out of that was, was teaching leadership courses, you know, teaching guys, um, the joy, my joy of being in the military and, and what led me to join the, to join the army, uh, as well as, as uh, physical fitness is probably the, one of the hardest times I ever worked out in my entire life. I uh, was just getting back to that place where I felt that I was, uh, I was ready again because for a while I felt like, you know, I felt like I was on broken toy Island, you know, like I got taken out of training. I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to be going. And uh, I just had to get myself in a mental state where I was, I was ready to go back. So me sharing that experience with guys, I think uh, opens, opens that door for the open door policy I think sometimes, you know, you got to take that, you got to take the door to the person. Uh, yeah. if that makes sense, right? You know, the person's not always going to walk through the door. Sometimes you got to take the door and, and, and like whack and, them and, and, you know, <laughs> throw it over them and make them fall through it because that's sometimes the only way that people will go through it. Yeah. And, and that's what, like, I always talk about with leadership is actually going out there. Like I, I see a lot in, in my space where the manager is basically in their office, and they never really go and walk around the plant or walk around the facility or see the guys who are actually doing the nuts and bolts work. And I think it's such a huge mistake. Not only do you not understand like what's actually happening on like in your operation, but you're also missing out on those conversations to build that trust and to foster that, you know, that psychological safety and all those things that are really going to pay off. Like it doesn't necessarily just have to be a conversation. Like the guy comes to you and says, I'm depressed. It could also be something like, Hey, this isn't working. This is broken or we need to fix this. And like, you need to know about it because you're the leader. And if he doesn't want to tell you because he's afraid that you're going to yell at him, like that's going to, that like that costs you money. Yeah. In, in a time, and in, in, it's in a time of email communication and, and telecommunication, uh, we've lost that skill. Um, so in the military, big time, everything is done via email and, and telecommunication. Um, and so I, I took it upon myself whenever I can, uh, I go direct to that person to, to, to talk about that, whatever we're at work issue is happening or whatever piece of communication needs to happen. When I can, I will talk to that person. Because not only are you going to talk about that, that specific issue that's happening, but that's when you're going to find out, you know, what maybe like what happened in their, in their day, the day before, what's going mm-hmm. on in their life. Those are those little, those little bits of social interaction that lead to you understanding your people that we're losing out of uh, because of our reliance upon uh, on email and telecommunication. We're losing those really, really valuable micro social interactions you know, you, you, a bunch of micro social interactions build up the trust between people. You know, if you spend 18 emails talking to somebody, you may, you may get to know them a little bit, a very small amount. If you have, I, I would build it down to like four social interactions with them. I guarantee you're going to know way more about that person. And that level of trust between the two of you is going to be exponentially greater uh, as compared to any type of electronic communication. Yeah, I love that. I use the same thing, actually. It's funny because <clears throat> um, when I used to be in the office, like literally the guy who would sit 
like six feet away from me. Sometimes he would ping me on chat and I just stood up and walked and hello. <laughs> right here, man. Yeah. Plus I use, I look for any excuse to get out of my office because like I'm not the best computer worker in the world. So if I get the chance to get up and get going and have a talk with somebody, it's like, Oh, yay. You know, I don't <laughs> twist my rubber arm. I'm out there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Lauren, there was something that Max was saying that we should touch on a little bit about, you know, your why, right? And he was saying it in the context of how to get back on his feet with teaching leadership and talking about why you got in the military, like how important, and I think for even for me, like, I think it's been good to connect with the why in order to get out of these dark places. Like how, how do you start with that? And like, how does it help you? Um, so connecting with your why is probably one of the biggest forces of motivation that you can tap into, um, because it connects with your core values as a human being. Um, if you are invested in doing something because it is inherently important to you, because it satisfies one of those core values, uh, for you, it might be like, you've always been a leader and you want to be a leader and you want to lead people. So that's one of your core values and being in the military, um, and, and going on tours helps satisfy that core value that you have you are going to have a more sustainable form of motivation that gets you through those really tough, sticky times that make you question what it is that you're doing. Like if you get sidelined because of an injury or you get delayed in your tour or whatever it is, if you have a strong why, you always have that reason to keep going. You always have the, the reason to search for the things that are going well. Um, whereas, you know, if you're just, floating around in a boat without a rudder, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere and you're going to find all of the reasons why you should stop and, and just let yourself float and drift. Um, so yeah, I think, and especially in the context of, of military, you see a lot of that um, also on both ends of the spectrum where you have people that get into the military because they inherently believe that it is their calling and that it's what they need to do but then you also have people, maybe on the more rare side, that get into the military because somebody else told them it was a good idea. And I think that's where you see the people that fall out after basic training mm -hmm. or midway through basic training. Or because it's been tradition, you know? Right. We see, we call them legacy guys. You know, my dad was in the military, his dad was in the military, and, and now it's my turn. Well, if your heart's not in it, like, is it, it it's not what you want to do, then why are you doing it? Because yeah. at the end of the day, what, what the military is predicated on, especially in my job as a frontier, is, is trust that that person is there for the right reasons and is going to be, is going to support you 100%. Now, if he doesn't believe in his, his own reason to be there, then, oh man, like <laughs> it's pretty hard to, to rely upon him to be the, the guy who's going to be there for you. Yeah. Which and is I, why, yeah. like, even if, if you could, you could tell me to do it. 10 ways from Sunday and I would never ever be motivated to join the military because my core belief in, in leadership and caring for people is filled by something entirely different. So yeah. I would never want to, you know, force myself into that Yeah. because I know that at the end of the day, it wouldn't give me the same feelings and yeah. the same passion for what I do. Yeah, I've always thought I'd be a terrible recruiter because like, <laughs> I'm not gonna be the guy who's like, hey, I, come come join us, man. I'd be like, hey, if you uh, if you want to, like doors open, come on in. <laughs> the right, the right reasons. <laughs> you know? There's no signing bonus, but like there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misery. <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know that's one of the reasons why I think there's so much rampant disengagement in the industry like regardless of your career path is I think a lot of people like, like for me specifically, like I was told go to college, take something math and science, get something that you can get a job with and make like, make a return, like an ROI or make money off of it. And I think like it doesn't relate really much to what you want to do or who you are. It's just more about, and then you're 17 or whatever, and you're applying to college and you're like, oh, you know, what should I take? Like, and you just kind of throw the dart at the dartboard. And I think you end up in these places like 
you know, again, like with mining, it wasn't that I wanted to get into mining. It was like, I met someone who worked at a mine and they're like, we always hire engineers. And then boom, I was an engineer at a mine. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I think like, yeah, it just, it just, for me, it really like Lauren, you come at it from this, from a different perspective than what is common mm-hmm. where, and I think like, that's the piece with the work that you do is, is more about connecting with who you are, why you're here, you know, your mission, your tricks, your bag of tricks, your values, and then picking a career or creating a career that fits you. Where I think a lot of us come from this other side where it's like, we're told, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer. And then we just kind of fall into it. Yeah. Well, and that's the society at large, right? Like that's, that's the society saying like, you need to have a job that makes money why wouldn't you want to look up what each career makes the average salary and then pick based off of that and say, Oh yeah, I could make that work for $150,000 a year or whatever the salary is. And to a certain extent, like I even tried to do that in college, but I was going through courses and saying like, I hate this stuff. Why would I ever want to, you know, bio 101 nearly killed me. Like why I, I knew that that wasn't something that I enjoyed and, you know, looking at both my parents who enjoyed their jobs and, and got, you know, joy from that kind of thing. And then watching Max pursue this career that he was so bought into, I was like, there's absolutely no way that I can go and fit into some like corporate machine or a cog in a wheel that, you know, just shows up to work like a ghost every day and does things on autopilot. Um, and that's really what it came from was saying like the people around me have found a way to find love in what they do. I also need to find that because that was the example I was going after. Yeah. And I had the opposite example. I was always told that like, like my dad said, basically, this is a quote. He said like, if work was fun, people wouldn't pay you to do it. And that was the example that I had. And and it's like, that was, you know, like that's where I ended up, right? And I'm in a career that like doesn't really fulfill me and doesn't really do, you know, those feelings that you're looking for. And I think like that's where people in my industry are most for the most part, right? And I think it's like, it's rampant. Like we're talking 70% disengagement across the board. And people don't understand the ramifications of that on your mental health and your physical health and your family and all this other stuff. Yeah. And I was, and I was lucky, like you can, you, you can ask Lauren, she'll tell you about it. She, my family probably knew that I'd be playing in the dirt with the green camis so on since I was like, you know, a young guy. Yeah. And I used to run around the woods playing, playing war. I got a Halloween. I was, I was a soldier with campaign on like, I was very lucky in that I knew early on exactly what I wanted to be, you know, whether it was an, an officer side or on, on the non-commission side, I, I knew a hundred percent that I wanted to be down in the dirt uh, with the guys and girls getting the job done. Yeah. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's extremely lucky, extremely yeah. lucky. And I think about that a lot. Um, and I see when people struggling with, with their career choices and I'm, and I'm, I just look to myself and go, man, the, the light the, to, to, to be so blessed to know that early on that is exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and when I was going through high school, obviously going to a private, a Catholic school steeped in, in, in a lot of um, Christian value, there was something that really rang out to me. It was a, it was a quote um, to him who does when him lies, God will not deny his grace. And, uh, you know, to follow, to follow the path that you truly feel that you are called to, uh, things are going to work out, you know, even through trials and tribulations along that path. If you truly 100% believe that that is exactly what you are built to do on this planet, uh, you will find, you will find ways to succeed. You know, you can get a hundred thousand roadblocks. You're going to come up with a hundred thousand one detours to get around them because you are a hundred percent invested in, in being that because that is why you were put on this planet. Yeah. And I think we could all like, I can see the way that that's played out in your life. Like we used to joke, like if you didn't have any luck or I, if you didn't if have, have bad luck, luck I wouldn't have, have any luck. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's just been like, there were a couple of years there where it was like thing after thing, like yeah. the freak accident with, you know, getting your concussion and stuff like that. And I remember talking to my mom, I was like, I feel so bad for this kid. And I was like, nah, he's fine. He still loves it. He'll figure a way around yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there was, always, there was always something to be done about it. You yeah. Know? I mean, the world didn't, the world didn't begin and end with every little thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> there's always going to be wrenches and there's always going to be roadblocks. That's, that's life. You know, mm. if it was, if it was easy, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to worry about growing as an individual. You could just reach like this homeostasis at 19 years old and you would coast through life and no one would grow as a person. That sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. It sounds really boring. Homeostasis of life. We, we should yeah. close out on that. that. <laughs> no, don't do avoid that. It. Yeah, avoid it. Avoid homeostasis of life. Grow as a person. <laughs> Max, I, I just have to say, we're going to have to have you back on because we, hey, we, absolutely. we that's yeah, right. We, we got to get more into this. <laughs> absolutely. Anytime. I love this one. Max, if anyone wants to connect with you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me uh, through Lauren. So any, any contact you make through Lauren, uh, they can reach my civilian email. I feel weird saying that, but my <laughs> civilian email at uh, nickwilliams1793 at gmail.com. Uh, I'll give Lauren the link and uh, they can have my phone number, call me up if they want to. So um yeah, any means any means of communication through Lauren is is really easy. I talk to her, you know, like every day. So yeah, I love that. And, and Lauren, we got a new website. Do you want to just talk about it a little bit? Oh, the new website that I've been tinkering with and swearing at a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> um, highperformancenarrative.com. That's that's it. Yes, Rob. That's it. And and yeah, and if you want to reach out to either of us, we have our our email, so you can get Lauren at Lauren at highperformance. Lauren at highperformancenarrative.com. You can get me at Rob at highperformancenarrative.com. You can check out all our services on our website, highperformancenarrative.com, and it'll point you in the right directions. And if you want to subscribe to the show, please subscribe to the show, Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on your favorite podcast platform, and tell your friends about the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on YouTube. We do it all. So thanks for listening. Max, it was it was great to touch base with you and I'd love to have you back on soon. My pleasure. My pleasure. I love to have, love, uh, love being here. Thank you for having me. And Lauren, thank you. And everyone, thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Happy New Year. <laughs>